Welcome to the Truth to Power show on Radio Free Brooklyn. I'm your host, VJR Nathan. And with us today is um, Micah Zevin. Welcome, Micah, our co-host, hey. Micah Zevin. Hey. Hey, hey, Micah. Good hey, morning, hey. everyone. And our featured guest is William J. McGee. Uh, McGee. Uh, he was born in New York City and received an MFA in fiction from Columbia University. Columbia University. Among other pursuits, he teaches undergraduate and graduate creative writing, represents travelers as a community advocate in Washington, and is an award-winning investigative journalist and columnist. McGee is the um, uh, former editor-in-chief of Consumer Reports Travel Letter and also worked in airline uh, flight operations management and served in the U.S. Air Force Auxiliary. He's the author of Attention All Passengers, a nonfiction expose of the airline industry, published in HarperCollins in 2012, and is developing a scripted television drama. Uh, McGee uh, lives in Connecticut, where he is a member of the Boxing Club, and is, of course, at work in another novel. He's also a father. Welcome, Bill. Thanks very much for having me on. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. So why don't we start the conversation off about um, some of your previous work. Tell us a little bit about Attention All Passengers and how that kind of connected to your advocacy work or, um, you know, and all this kind of stuff and how, and how, like just as a writer, how you evolved. Sure. Yeah. Well, it, it's really been an interesting journey because it, it's like one thing has led to another. Um, I worked in the airline industry for about seven years and I got into the airlines just because I wanted to travel, which I, I got to do, I got to go all over the world. And um, then uh, after that was over, I became a journalist and I started writing about the airline industry. And that eventually led me to Consumer Reports, which is sort of unlike every other magazine in the country because it's, uh, it's published by the largest nonprofit consumer organization in the world. So the airlines led to journalism and then journalism led to advocacy. And um, so now I've been with Consumer Reports for a long time, about 20 years, and I'm their um, advisor. On, uh, you know, on advocacy issues for airline passengers in Washington. So, um, so it's a bit of a dirty job because um, we're up against uh, some really formidable foes when it comes to the airline industry. They have a lot of money. And I'm the guy that goes to uh, Washington, testifies in Congress. I've done it about seven or eight times. And usually yeah. there's a panel of about five or six airline executives and then me. I'm representing you, <laughs> all 300 million Americans. And the airlines are... You know, representing themselves, obviously. Um, so it's tough because um, you know you don't always get a lot of successes. Um, and in recent years, uh, under the Trump administration, it's been worse than ever. You know, really been an uphill battle, um, fighting for the most the most basic things. And so all of that sort of culminated in um, in my book, Attention All Passengers. As you, as you noted, it's a it's a nonfiction expose. And what's was, the subtitle? Uh, the subtitle it's called Attention All Passengers. The Airline's Dangerous Descent and How to Reclaim Our Skies. Oh. And um, it sort of chronicles everything that's gone wrong in, in one specific industry over the last 30 years or so. Um, but really, I think it speaks to the larger issues of, of many of the things that are wrong with America. You know, uh, I'm just sort of in this one area here, but I, I think, you know, a lot of what's gone wrong in the airlines is what's gone wrong in healthcare and financial reform and so many other things, energy and, and you know, any other field you can you can imagine because the government is really just not providing oversight even on the most critical safety issues a lot of attention all passengers is about uh maintenance of aircraft and safety issues and um i think most americans are shocked to learn that every single u.s airline 
uh, outsources its maintenance, most of it outside the United States, um, to El Salvador, Mexico, China, Singapore, Brazil, and that the Federal Aviation Administration that is supposed to be overseeing this work, um, it very rarely gets to those places. So the airlines are sort of on the honor system. Mm. And a lot of the facilities that are doing the work, um, it's unlicensed uh, technicians. They're not licensed mechanics. So there's two sets of rules. There's one set of rules inside the United States and one outside. Um, a lot of people are shocked to learn all this. And, you know, it, it's been a problem that has occurred over over decades now. It's gotten worse and worse. And it was a problem under Clinton, under Bush, under Obama, under Trump. Um, each one of those presidents has come in and said, well, they're going to do something about this. And, you know, uh, they make it a jobs issue very often and say, well, we'll bring jobs back to the United States. And in fact, more work gets outsourced. And for us, it's, it's not, you know, for advocates, it's really not even so much about the jobs, but about the safety issues, because it's just not the same level of safety. Thankfully, planes are built better than they used to be. So the safety record remains good. But there's a lot of concerns about not having a handle on who's fixing the planes and who's looking, you know, looking after the planes. Um, so that's a big part of attention all passengers. And um, it's been it's been an uphill battle. It mm-hmm. really has um, fighting these fighting these fights for safety. So I'd be curious how um, writing creative writing aspects to it, like how creative uh, writing, uh, taking all this information and kind of digesting it and presenting it in a way that the reader can understand. How is that process for you? Yeah, that's a great question because, you know, I, I, I write both fiction and nonfiction. And, mm-hmm. and I, I taught creative writing for 10 years at Hofstra University on Long Island. And I taught both fiction and creative nonfiction. And, you know, people often say to me, what's the difference? And, and I often say, well, I think it's less about the differences and more about the similarities. I think they both have to do with, you know, sort of essential truths. People, I think, have a myth that when you write fiction, that you can just make up whatever you want, but it has to have sort of an internal logic that makes sense, you know, for those characters and for that story. When you have a character do something that's out of out of character for, for her, for him, everybody knows it immediately, right? We see it in a movie, we see it in a TV show, we yeah. see it in a book. And so with Attention All Passengers, um, it's nonfiction, but I sort of wove my own story into it. So I sort of used some of the elements of fiction to talk about what it was like when I worked in the airlines and how I've seen changes. Okay. So um, also I understand uh, some of the advocacies, some of your uh, philosophy or philosophical perspective was influenced by Ralph Nader. Why don't we go a little bit into that and how yeah. some of the people who influenced maybe your perspective on these issues and how you digest them or how you present them, maybe uh, that might be a good way into the, the kind of the fabric of the book as well. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. yeah so um, when, when Attentional Passengers was getting ready for publication, we reached out to, uh, to some people to get uh, blurbs, you know, for the back cover the, the yeah. that you see. And, um, you know, we got two really good ones. We got Captain Sully Sullenberger, as everybody remembers from the Hudson River, the, the pilot that oh. saved all those lives on U.S. Airways a couple years ago. And the other one was Ralph Nader. And, those uh, are both impressive. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, those, are, those are who you want when you're talking about, you know, safety of airline passengers, right? Yeah. So I reached out to Ralph Nader. I just called him blind one day, and I thought I'll never get through to him. And an hour later, he called me back. And it's one of these things. He's a very interesting character. Um, it's one of these things where he asked me more questions than I asked him. You know, I was going to interview him, and he started asking, well, well, what are you finding? Well, what do you mean planes are being fixed in El Salvador and they're not licensed? And 
well, what, where's the FAA? And all of a sudden I looked at my watch and it was like the interview was almost over and I had no notes, you know? So <laughs> I, I sort of, you know, need to ask you some questions. And he said, well, I have to go. I'll call you back. And I thought, oh, I hope, I, you know, I hope he does. He <laughs> called me back at eight o'clock at night, you know, that night, you know, and that started a relationship that we still have to this day. Um, wow. I look at it that like, you know, I'm one of his, uh, I think it's fair to say one of his go-to people on airline issues. But he advocates on just about everything, you know, food safety, health care, you name it, voting, you know, um, and financial reform, you name it. And so I imagine he's got all sorts of Bill McGee's all over the place that he calls, right. you know. And when he calls, he calls. It might be a Sunday morning. It might be, you know, 11 o'clock at night. And he has questions. He just works tirelessly. He works seven days a week. Yeah. And um, so uh, we've worked together several times. He's been very good to me. In, in, in promoting my books and, and promoting what I do. Mm. And um, he has a museum up here in Connecticut where I live now and uh, that he founded. It's called the Tort Law Museum. Really? And there's a, there's a Corvair, which some of you may remember uh, back before my time, but in the early 60s when he you know said that the Chevrolet Corvair was dangerous. That's what sort of made him famous. And there's one right in the lobby of the museum. And so I've spoken there um, because in a weird in this weird coincidence of events last year, um, I'm sure everyone remembers when there were problems with the Boeing 737 MAX aircraft and there were two fatal crashes overseas. And the second one um, actually killed Ralph's uh, great niece. And he called me the next day and I, I wasn't surprised he was calling me about an airplane crash because that's sort of what he does. And then he told me that, you know, he had lost a family member and I, I was shocked. And so he asked me to speak at her memorial service at the museum in Connecticut last year, which was a real honor. And um, it was mostly family that spoke. And so, you know, he's been a real inspiration. Um, he is someone who just is tireless. I mean, I, I, as a consumer advocate, I've done, you know, a fraction of what, you know, it's, it's something that I can't even, probably 1% of what he's ever done. He just works seven days a week and he has for decades. And so finally last year, we were at a, a forum together in Washington. And I said to him in publicly in this Q and A that I was doing with him, I, I said to him, how do you keep doing it? You know, it's very hard. You go to Washington and it's all about money. I mean, you know, I'm not telling you anything new, but this country right. is all about money and the lobbyists and the deep pockets. And when I go and testify in Congress, you know, they're polite to me and they ask me questions, but the airlines always win. I mean, that's just, you know, not, just about every time. I've testified against four different mergers of airlines because it's harmful to consumers. Every single one of those mergers was rubber stamped and approved, you know. Mm. And sometimes I, I get despondent and think, why, why am I bothering, you know? Mm. And I thought, well, I really can't complain next to Ralph Nader. He's been doing this since, you know, I was a toddler, you know. Right, yeah. And so, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And he just, and he keeps coming back. And so I asked him at this forum last year, it was at the National Press Club. I said, how do you keep doing it, you know? And his answer was so simple. It was brilliant. He just said, you have to decide what kind of world you want to live in. And then, you know, you just have to go out and do it. And it was that simple. Like, he didn't make it a complicated answer. And so I thought, well, how can I, you know, complain? You know, I just have to keep fighting. And we all do. But, you know, we fight by voting. We fight in all different ways. Advocacy, like I said, it's not something I never set out to say, oh, I'm going to be an advocate someday. You know, mm -hmm. I, I wound up, you know, at Consumer Reports writing about aviation. And then all of a sudden, instead of writing about it, I became an advocate, you know? And it's tough for airline passengers these days, especially during COVID. We've been fighting for months 
and it's been it's just been a nightmare. We haven't been able to to get anything done in terms of protection for consumers. The current Secretary of Transportation, Elaine Chao, she will not even mandate that people wear masks. I mean, it just that's a very very simple ask, you know, it's a very simple basic thing. She wouldn't even do that. There's been no regulations since COVID started. So it's all up to the what they call the free market, you know. Yeah. It's all up to the airlines. So you're you're putting your health and your family's health and strangers' health, you're putting it, you know, on airline CEOs who who work for a profit. So it's uh, it's an uphill battle, and and I hope with the new administration that we see some changes at least in that area that we start getting some rules on flying. Yeah, and some of your answers you were talking a little bit about the myth of objectivity and kind of how we can use our biases to advocate and kind of leverage, you know, kind of our subjectivity, if you will, to um, kind of advocate on behalf of consumers and make sure that we're fighting for the right guy, fighting for the fighting for the proper person. So tell us a little bit more about like this myth of objectivity and objectivity, subjectivity and how they interact or how bias interacts or all this kind of stuff. Yeah, navigating that difficult terrain sometimes for people kind of, you know, casual people in journalism, they think like, oh, you know, journalists should always be objective and all that kind of thing. And what's the what's really the truth? Yeah, it's it's a great issue because um, until I got to Consumer Reports, I always considered myself, you know, I, I think I was a good journalist and I was, you know, I did a lot of investigative work on airlines and safety and things like that. Um, but if anybody had asked me, I would have said, well, I'm, you know, I'm completely objective. You get to a point where you realize that objectivity is, you know, is, is, is relative. We all have biases. It's, it's just inherent. It's how you, you know, it's how you try and overcome them. And so when it comes to like covering an industry, in my case, it's the airlines, but it could be any industry. Like I said, it could be healthcare, it could be Wall Street, whatever. You know, journalists pride themselves on objectivity, but it's like I'm stepping back and saying, you know, 90% or more of journalism about the airline industry, it's not truly objective from the, from the um, consumer's perspective. And it's not truly objective even from labor's perspective. It's, it's, it's very often, it's all about Wall Street. It's all about the stock prices. It's all about, you know, getting access to CEOs. And I did that for years. For 10 years, I was a, a beat reporter covering the airlines. And I ran out and interviewed all the CEOs and all the government officials. And, you know, was I serving consumers? You know, how do the consumers work into that? So at Consumer Reports, I mean, we embrace this, you know, on the journal, I'm on the advocacy side, but on the journalism side with the magazine and and the website, which I often do work for, um, we call it advocacy journalism. We, you know, our bias, I, I, I joke, but it's not a joke. I'll say, well, our bias is right in the name, Consumer Reports. That's who we're representing. We're not here to worry about, you know, Delta Airlines stock price or American Airlines, yeah. United Airlines. We're here to say, is this decision going to be good or bad for consumers? And after that, the chips fall, you know, where they do. Yeah. Okay. okay. Thank you. So, um, do you want to read like a little bit from Attentional Passages before we go into Half the Child or just maybe even just the back cover if you'd like? Something just to give us a little bit more, sure. uh, give the listeners a little more sense of what, what the scope of the uh, book is. Sure. Um, uh, what I can tell you is that, you know, I can, I can sort of um, summarize it for you. Uh, yeah. Attention All Passengers, um, uh, I had an agent that went out and, and sold it to HarperCollins. And um, to be honest, I thought it would take longer to sell. And he sold it in a couple of days, the idea, and it wasn't written yet. So I suddenly had to take a leave of absence, which is a good thing, of course. And um, I then spent a year traveling all over the world. This, was, this book is just focused on the U.S. airline industry, but the U.S. airline industry 
is sort of spread out all over the world because when you call reservations to talk to you know an airline about a, a reservation you might be talking to someone in india if you if you mm. you know have an, get on an aircraft the aircraft might have been fixed in china so i went all over the world and i tried to you know track down what i thought i knew about the airline industry working in it but it really was eye-opening and i and i and i spoke to passengers and i spoke to the people that you know we were just talking about journalism and how you know, you speak to CEOs very often as journalists, so you speak to Washington officials. And I wanted to sort of flip that. And, you know, the CEOs have gotten their day. They get plenty of attention. They have press releases. They have, you know, public relations people. I want to speak to people that are just in the front lines, passengers, pilots, mechanics, the people that never speak to journalists. Right. And, and that's hard work because investigative journalism is really tough in many ways. One is because when you talk to people who don't normally talk to journalists, they're very reticent and understandably, they don't want to lose their jobs if they're exposing things, you know, and you have to build up trust. So it was a long process. In some cases, I had to call people, meet with them, and they still weren't talking on the record. They still were hesitant to talk to me. And you have to earn trust. Then you find the good news is when you start getting the trust of two or three people, they'll spread the word and say, well, you should also speak to my friend so-and-so, you know, and it leads to more stuff. So that's what Attention All Passengers is all about. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's an expose sort of from the bottom up. It's, you know, it, uh, I, was, I was sort of done at this point. I mean, I want to make clear, I did speak to government officials and the DOT secretary and the administrator of the Federal Aviation Administration and National Transportation Safety Board, all the government agencies. And I did speak to CEOs. I really want to speak to, to average people and passengers, passengers who had awful experiences, passengers who had survived airplane accidents, family members of passengers who had survived airplane accidents. I mean, it's very sobering, you know, when you speak to a family who have lost, you know, a teenage daughter in an airplane crash, and you know that that crash was preventable if somebody hadn't skimped on the money to, you know, maintain the aircraft. And so it was, it was quite a journey for me. But, um, you know, I'm happy where, the way it turned out. I, I should point out um, that it was published in 2012, as, as you mentioned, Vijay, but um, normally, a nonfiction book would be out of date after eight years, to be honest with you. But Attention on Passengers really is not out of date because I was prognosticating about the future. Back in 2012, I was saying, well, if things continue, this is what's going to happen. Well, mm. I'm not trying to say, um, you know, I have a crystal ball, but a lot of the things that are in this book, most of it, in fact, has happened. I saw how the trend lines were going, and I saw that things were going in the wrong direction. So cool. it's, still, it's still relevant today. That's the interesting thing. Excellent, excellent. Great. Wow. Um, so why don't we go into Half the Child then, <laughs> which is a fictional uh, novel. Uh, tell us a little bit about what's premises and all this kind of stuff and then the evolution. Yeah. Sure. Well, so Half the Child is a real labor of love for me. Um, this is the first novel that I've published. And um, I'll, I'll hold it up and maybe you can see on the yeah. on the cover there, um, it, it depicts a... Uh, uh, in a very visual way, a, a child that's been sliced in half. You know, it's, a, it's about a custody situation and ultimately an abduction. Um, I sort of talk, I, I sort of refer to it sometimes as a, as a, as a love story, but in a different way. It's about, a, it's about parental love. It's about a father and his very young son, and it takes place over four summers uh, when, the, when the boy is two, three, four, and five. And um, it's set where I was born and raised, in the borough of Queens, uh, Michael, the fictional narrator, um, you know, aviation always creeps into everything I do. He's, a, he's an air traffic controller at LaGuardia Airport. He's obviously got a very high stress, important job. Mm-hmm. And um, he sort of prides himself on being 
a professional and, and being a sort of controller's controller until this happens with his son when suddenly he's fighting for his son and keep his son in his life and then his son is abducted by by his son's mother he suddenly finds that he's distracted at work for the first time before that he was always locked in and is focused on talking to the planes and now it's creeping into his work and in fact every area of his life is affected by this custody situation um if you like i could read you a short section from yeah Hector sure Charles, that'd be great flavor for it okay sure, sure. so um it's written in first person and in present tense and uh, those are both intentional decisions on my part and i just want to always sort of have the reader in his head in real time as things happen so this is a uh, one of the many sections where he's sort of just ruminating while he's up in the tower at LaGuardia. i live in the present i'm on break but i haven't left my station and i stare for long minutes without blinking it's the rare day runway 22 is in use for departures, and I watch as aluminum meets that mix of nitrogen and oxygen, and each time, every time, the eye is deceived, and the pressurized vessel somehow manages to lift, and then it grows smaller and smaller still. That old New Yorker cover, not so funny now, to anyone up high like me, staring past Flushing and the Bronx and Connecticut and this blue ball itself. I live in the, I live in the present, but there are many things I don't know. So I'm continually learning and forgetting, learning and forgetting. Among the things I don't know is that my life, which has never been worse, is going to get much worse and much worse still, and even much worse after that. I don't know fundamental truths will be exposed as lies. Allegiances will shift. Dormant veracity will form new foundations. I don't know that later I will say if I had known all the things I had not known at this time, I would have killed myself, perhaps on this very day, this rarest of days, a runway 22 departures day on one more pressurized vessel with exter external pressure fighting pressure from within. Um, so that gives you a little flavor of um, Michael and, and, and his, uh, his, his voice. Um, this is really, like I said, it's, it's at its heart. It's, it's an unusual love story because um, uh, I had an agent that was trying to shop half the child to all the big publishing houses. And after having, you know, a book published by, a big publisher a couple of years ago, HarperCollins, I thought, well, this will be, you know, uh, hopefully a, an easy process. It wasn't. Um, <laughs> not at all. And um, the agent did some research, and, and he found that, um, incredibly, um, this may surprise you, surprised me, there hadn't been a novel published in the United States in almost 50 years, since the early 70s, about child custody from the perspective of a father. Wow. Um, many novels from the perspective of a mother, some nonfiction books. Right. I would fathers. think there'd be a YA novel, at, le at least. The you would think, right? Um, the best one was Kramer versus Kramer, which I think many of us remember the movie. With yeah, Dustin I remember the Hoffman. movie. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I was just thinking of that. That's strange. Yeah. yeah. Just yeah. Well, that, that was a that novel. Was a long time first. ago. Yeah, it was like 1973. So it's almost yeah. 50 years ago. So I thought, wow. So, um, you know, we've been talking about money, you know, and, and how it affects everything. And, of course, it affects, you know, publishing and art and everything else. Right. And so um, we started getting rejections for Half the Child. And they were very strange. They were very strange rejections. I've, I've talked about this before. In fact, I invented a new term. Um, we were talking about the blurbs that you get on the back of a book. Um, well, I invented a new term called a regerb, which is a rejection and a blurb. It's a rejection that's so good you could use it as a blurb if you wanted to. Uh -huh. So. We were getting like three-page rejections, which is really unusual. That's you know? Those are positive rejections. <laughs> yes, yeah. Exactly. That's right. what they call. 
That's a real oxymoron if ever there was one, right? You know? No, just like, oh, well, they said so much, that means there's something there. Like, maybe right. I keep going. Right. Well, that's what we were getting, you know, people that, that almost seemed sorry to say no, you know. And so, you know, I was talking to the agent about it and saying, well, you know, what's going on here? And, and so I reached out to some writer friends of mine, all of whom were published novels. And I said, look, you know, if it's, if it's me and, and, and the book has a problem, fine, you know. But, you know, they, they all read it, the manuscript. And, and they said, no, you know, it, it, it certainly should be published. And they thought it was good. Um, so what we're finding is that this was a sort of a financial decision based on some myths, quite frankly, in, in my opinion, that a lot of the editors were saying, well, this is, you know, if this was from the perspective of a mother, it would be easier to sell because women buy more books and women go to more bookstores and women read more books. And so the notion that, you know, men don't buy books or read books, you know, sort of rejected. But the interesting thing is that um, once I made the decision to self-publish it, um, if you go online and you read the reviews for Half the Child, um, there's like 50 or 60 reviews online. Overwhelmingly, they're from women. And it's women that have really fallen in love with this book. Um, and I, you know, I joke about this, but it's true. I just about two months ago, I got a, I have a public website, halfthechild.com, and you can email me there. So anyone that wants to talk to me about anything can reach me through halfthechild.com. And a woman who I didn't know reached out and she, she said she wanted to marry Michael Mullen, my fictional narrator, you know, <laughs> and <laughs> I had to break the news to her that he's fictional and doesn't exist except in my head, you know. Yeah. But she said, you know, he's such a loving, devoted dad. I would marry him in a minute, you know. Um, so this isn't about me saying, you know, oh, the publishing industry was wrong and it sounds like sour grapes and all that. But it's just there are struggles no matter who you are or, or where you're coming from, um, you know, in trying to make art meet commerce, you know. And 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 um, I, I do think that they looked at it a little too narrowly to say something like, well, women aren't going to want to read about a father, you know. Turns out women love to read about loving, dedicated fathers, you know. So, um, so you know, Half the Child is something that um, is very close to my heart. And, you know, I'm happy to talk about this, too. It led me to advocacy again, which I didn't see coming. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And before we get to uh, just tell us a little bit about the, as the creative writing process, like how you're able to... Tell us a little bit more about that. You said there's different uh, techniques used, obviously, in fiction writing as opposed to creative nonfiction. So tell us a little bit about some of the techniques you use to flesh out the characters or some things you'd like right. to teaching moments, teachable moments in the novel. Sure, sure. Well, you know, when I was teaching creative writing, you know, um, we'd, we'd be in a workshop, 20 students or so, and somebody would start reading. And I would stop them sometimes after the first paragraph, and I'd say, why did you make the decisions you made? You know, first paragraph, maybe it was 120 words. It's hardly, you know, not much when you're talking about a novel or a short story. And I'd say, why did you don't? Why did you do this? Why did you do that? And sometimes the students wouldn't know. Sometimes they would. Um, we don't realize we make so many, we make thousands of decisions if we're writing a novel, right? And so I made some very deliberate decisions. I, you know, I, I, I mentioned it's in first person. I wanted it to be in first person. I wanted, I wanted us to see this through Michael's eyes because... See, also the reason that I, I wrote it in present tense. Um, you know, past tense to me, when you use past tense, which is most novels, statistically mm. most novels are written in past tense, you're really telling two stories, I think. You know, you could draw two timelines. I used to do it on the whiteboard with a, with a Sharpie when I was teaching. Here's the timeline of the story, and it takes place from, you know, April to June, of, you know, the, the given year. But then there's a second timeline. When is it being told? Maybe it's five years mm. later. Maybe it's 10 years later, right? 
And I used to write on the board and I would talk about my father's experiences in World War II. He was in some of the worst combat of the war at Anzio in North Africa. And he was wounded and it was just an awful experience. And he didn't talk about the war when we were all growing up. He didn't talk about it for about 50 years. till very late in his life before he died in his 80s. And then suddenly the floodgates opened and he was talking about it you know, all the time. And so I would draw on the board like, okay, here's when he was in the war from 1943 to 1945. Okay. That's a very set time. It's historic. We know the years. But if he were to talk about that experience, he would talk about it differently in 1945 than 1965 or 1985 or 1995, you know. And mm-hmm. it wasn't until the 50th anniversary of Anzio in the 90s, he went over to Italy for the first time in 50 years and went back and suddenly everything came out and he started talking about it. He met President Clinton. Some of us were worried that he wouldn't be polite to him, but he was. Um, he wasn't a fan. And, um, and, and so suddenly, you know, he was talking about the wall. And so those two timelines are in my head. You know, it's, it's, it's not enough to say, well, this is when the story is set. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to write this in present tense. Um, I've referred to it several times as this is sort of like a, 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 it's, it's everything is in motion in half the child. Michael is never ahead of things. If I wrote this as past tense, Michael would be looking back and saying, well, several years ago, my son was abducted. I wanted him to suddenly learn, just as the reader learns, my son's been abducted. Yeah, well, it's like, I think it's more powerful. It's direct, like present tense for this kind of subject. Yeah, absolutely. I look at it like it's like, you know, I mean, I've referred to it as sort of like it's a car accident in slow motion. You know, it's like mm-hmm. you see it, you know, and, and also, I, you know, I've, I've said it's like billiard balls. You know, it's like things are moving all at once, you know. And, and so for him, most people, you know, I mean, who, who gets married? Or who has a child thinking the worst, thinking that it's going to end, you know, in, in heartache and grief. So most people go into it with a healthy attitude and hope for the best and, 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 and have dreams of it, you know, lasting forever. And suddenly it's upended and his, his wife says she wants a divorce. And then, you know, she takes um, Benjamin, their child. And um, he's, he's always reacting. He's never acting. He's always reacting. And he's always, you know, suddenly he has to go to court. And then his child is abducted. He has to go to, to Holland, to the court of the Hague. And he has to go to Interpol. And he has to track down his son. And he's always one step behind, you know. And, um, you know, some people have criticized the book. Uh, well, one person in particular said to me, you know, well, I, I think you know, I had a problem with it because he made a lot of bad decisions legally. And I said, well, that's, that's the point, you know. Mm. If he was a lawyer and he knew what he was doing. I mean, all of us, if we had a playbook for these things, we would, you know. Yeah. Um, it's like when any terrible thing happens, when someone gets cancer or something, and they're not aware, you know, you make the wrong decision and you make the right decision. So he's constantly trying to, you know, trying to deal with these things as they happen. And his life is just, you know, upended. And his son's life is upended. And, you know, he's when you get down to it, I mean, he's, you know, he's a complicated guy, of course. But basically, you can sum him up very easily, you know. His two passions in his life, you know, his son and, and talking to airplanes, you know, and mm-hmm. and he's not going to give up the fight for his son. So, um, you know, it affects everything in his life. Michael's life and half the child is it affects his his health, his mental health, his finances, his career, and yet he just keeps saying, "I'm I'm not going to give up." You know, he's going to keep fighting for his son. Good, good. Um, so I would ask, like, uh, as a reader. Um, what are some novels that really influenced your writing style or the way in which you approach writing? Was there any particular 
book you read maybe as a child growing up or as an adult or that you look to for like a model for kind of your uh, your take on things? Yeah, well, you know, I mean, like all writers, I'm a reader. And, and, you know, whenever students would ask me, you know, how do I how do I get better as a writer? The answer I don't think has ever changed since time began. You have to read, you know, and I joke, but it's not really a joke. My only real possession in life are books, you know. I mean, yeah. my guy, see what's behind you there, you know. Yeah. Full of, all I have is books, you know. If I move, all I move is books, basically. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, for me, um, you know, I, I know it sounds like I'm shooting very high, but, you know, my my favorite novel is one of the greatest novels ever written, and certainly in America, and that's, you know, Huckleberry Finn. And I'm a, I'm a huge Mark Twain fan. And um, like me... Uh, you know, what I like about him is that he wrote both fiction and nonfiction. Right. And he was very much a part of his time. He wasn't just a novelist who went off in the woods and, and you know, and wrote novels. And that's all we heard from him. But he was very much engaged. You know, he was a public speaker and he was an advocate in his own way. He advocated against the Spanish-American War and other things, you know, um, and for racial equality. And, you know, Huckleberry Finn was just such a game changer. Um, I, I, I moved up to Connecticut a few years ago and um, his his in Hartford is his, his home, his museum, the Mark Twain house. And that was where he spent both, and I don't think it's coincidental, it were the happiest years of his life and the most productive years of his life, where he wrote Huckleberry Finn and Tom Sawyer. And, and he was very happy there with his wife and children. And um, with, with Mark Twain, you know, when, when Huckleberry Finn came out, I mean, it just changed all the rules. It was this sort of, he helped develop an American language, you know, which we all use in one way or another. And, you know, the interesting thing about writing, I'm sure it's the same for music and acting and other, other arts, is that if you're a writer, you may not have even read a certain author and you've been influenced by her or by him, you know, and that's what I think a lot of people don't understand, you know. Mm. You can't write in America uh, without having been influenced by Mark Twain, even if you never picked him up, you know. Um, but, you know, with Huckleberry Finn, I mean, this is a guy that, you know, addressed to me, what is the most fundamental issue all throughout American history, which is race. I think it is the, the dominant theme, you know, from the time of the, you know, the colonization to Native Americans, to slavery, to, to 2020 in the streets, you know, to today. Um, it is the issue. And he found, you know, a sort of new voice for that and others, of course, too. But so, you know, for me, um, it's, it's one of those books I go back and read, you know, every couple of years. I do that a lot with, with books that I like. Um, another book that I, I often reread is, um, is um, In Cold Blood by Truman Capote. Oh. Because, again, we're talking about fiction versus nonfiction. Here's a guy who smashed those together, right? Yeah. He, 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 it, was, it was journalism, but he called it a novel. And it was like, you know, in the 60s right. when that came out, it was like, what's the deal with this, right? And he was interviewing these these real people and and quoting what they said, but he didn't take notes. So you know, um, but the thing about In Cold Blood, um, I had a when I when I was in graduate school at Columbia University getting my MFA, I had a uh, an instructor who said something to me I've never forgotten. Um, she said, "Well, all novels are mysteries," and and I thought she, you know at first you think she means the genre of you know a murder mystery and who you know who done it and let's go you know catch the murderer. But she said, there's always a mystery at the core of a novel, you know, and it may not be a, a murder, but it, it, you know, will they get together and live happily ever after? Will they survive the war? Will they, you know, mm-hmm. will, 
whatever. Will, you know, will Michael be reunited with his son who's been abducted? You know, every novel. And, 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 and I, you know, I came to believe that. And the thing about In Cold Blood that just like blows me away is, you know what's going to happen when you read the back cover. You know everything. You know that these two guys killed this family of four. You know they're they're captured. You know they're put to death. It's, I'm not. You know, there's no giveaways here. I'm not. You know, no spoiler alerts. Right. It's on the back cover, and yet I can't tell you how many times I've read it at two in the morning and said, uh, and I wind up staying up till four in the morning. It's like I know what's yeah. going to happen, and I'm still reading it. You know, <laughs> um, that that ability to put suspense onto every page. You know. Um, you know, that's, that's something I think we all need to do when we're writing is, you know, so I, you know, I, I do the same thing. I think, well, okay, you know, what is going to be on the back of the book? How are you going to describe it? There are certain things I wouldn't want to tell you about half the child because it would be a spoiler alert, but other things, you know, I can say. Um, and so the question becomes, it's, maybe it's not a who done it, but a why done it, you know, like, but why did these people do the things that they did? It may not be a murder, but why, you know, why do characters act that way? So, you know, or how done it, how did they do that, you know? Um, so for me, you know, um, reading and writing are just, they're, inter they're interwoven. I can't imagine, you know, not reading, you know, for more than a week at a time, any more than not writing. Great, great. So this is the Truth to Power Show on Ready for Brooklyn. We're talking with uh, Bill McGee or William J. McGee, his writer name. And uh, we're here with Micah Zevin. Um, we're talking a little bit about Half the Child, a fictional novel, as well as in the beginning, we we're talking a little bit about Attentional Passengers, a creative nonfiction about the airline industry. Um, so yeah, yeah, so this is a really great conversation that we're having, uh, talking a little bit about um, you know, all these different topics and how they connect in your life, uh, Bill's life. Um, so why don't we talk a little bit about, now I know Queens is also a major kind of influence on you having were you born and raised in queens or i was or, yeah, yeah in jackson heights you know cool, cool. and then moved uh, grew right. up in jackson <laughs> yeah, yeah right right exactly there you yeah. go it's for my case yeah yeah right we've talked yeah. about that um, I, I mean i should mention you know michael was so generous in having me to his reading series in woodside yeah. the old stomping grounds you know and, that, yeah. and that's where I, I met you as as well there PJ. thank you thank you and um uh you know so um you know i i talk of course about half the child being you know, a, a love story between a, a, a parent and, a, and his young son. But I also, to be honest, I also look at it as sort of a love story for Queens, you know. Um, not every scene, but just about every scene is set in Queens. Right, and Queens is a character, I'd say. Yes, yeah. yes, exactly. I, I, you know, it's a great observation, because I think a locale can be a character, you know. And, mm. and Queens, my gosh, you know, um, you know, most, most people estimate that it's the most ethically diverse place on earth you know that's not hyperbole that's a fact right and i think just about every language in the world is spoken in queens you know i mean it's so rich you know how can you go wrong studying a novel there and so you know in the course of this novel michael you know there are scenes that take place with him in astoria and and, and hollis right. and jamaica and i was trying to figure out where like some i was like okay where exactly is this i was trying to like google exactly. parts and be like i think i know where this diner is or yes what. right exactly yeah or uh, you know donovan's pub in woodside or whatever <laughs> you know? yeah. yeah and and of course you know um he's a he's a mets fan which he has to be coming from queens ironically i'm a i'm from queens and i'm a yankees fan so oh, uh, you know that's yeah. That's when you know you're writing fiction when you can, you know, when you can write <laughs> terrible things. Good, you know? good. So, <laughs> you know, 
Okay. Yeah, can you tease us a little bit about what um, uh, what's coming up for next for you, or what's what's kind of your what's your next projects, or what you're looking towards doing, or your dream projects, or things you'd like to write sure. about, all this kind of stuff. Yeah. Sure. Well, um, so half the child is is something that I'm so sort of very much involved in um, because um, you know we were talking about advocacy and the advocacy work that I do for. Along uh, passengers, and um, can you? Oh, it seems like it's breaking up a little bit. Yeah, uh, let me see if I can. Uh, okay, can you hear me? Okay. Yeah, now it's okay. Yeah, now it seems like jump back. Okay. The video. Yeah. So I'm sorry. So I was saying that you know I was involved in advocacy work. I've been involved in advocacy work for airline passengers. Half the child has sort of opened up a whole new um, field for me as well. Again, I didn't seek it. I have a friend that said to me just recently, and, and I think she said it very well. She said, you know, we often don't seek advocacy. Advocacy seeks us, you know. Mm. And yeah. so I published this novel, and it's about, you know, as we said, it's about custody and abduction. And um, what it's at, in, at its core in some ways, is about a term called parental alienation, which is it's sort of a controversial topic uh, with lawyers and psychologists, but it basically, it, when you sum it up, it means that one parent uh, sort of weaponizes the child against the other parent to prevent the, the other parent from being in the child's life. And it can take very subtle forms like, you know, canceling visitation or, you know, trying to change the child's name. It can take extreme forms like abduction as in half the child, which is what that's about. Um, it could, in the worst case, it could lead to murder, you know. Um, and so, uh, here's the thing, and this is a, you know, a confession that I'm happy to make. I was writing about this condition called half the child and I uh, call, excuse me, called parental alienation. And I didn't know that there was such a thing called parental alienation, you know, mm. and I don't think that's unusual. I think the human experience is such that, you know, we, 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 we know things, you know, before we know it even has a name or that somebody has, you know, has, has, has sort of, you know, created a field of study about it. And so, you know, I wrote an entire novel about parental alienation and didn't know until about two months before I finished it. There's only one reference to the term in there, and it's not from Michael, it's from someone else. And so when the novel came out, I started, you know, looking to do readings, and I reached out to some, some groups, and um, suddenly I found myself now, you know, getting a new field of advocacy for parental alienation and for children. And so last year, you know, before COVID, when we still used to go out and do stuff, um, I went to Philadelphia and there was a, a, an annual conference for this group called Parental Alienation Support Group. And there were like 200 people in the room and they were, they were lawyers and, and psychologists and mental health people. But there were also parents who had had a child taken away from them. And really interesting for me, you know, Benjamin is only five years old at the end of this novel. There were adults who had been abducted as children, you know, when, you know, some of them were in their thirties and forties. And so now, um, you know, I didn't seek it, but I embrace it. I'm suddenly now advocating about parental alienation. I'm going and doing readings before these groups. And of course now with COVID, a lot of it is online with zoom and whatnot, but, you know, reaching out to these groups and they're reaching out to me and, to my knowledge, if if it's out there, I'm not aware of it. No one has no one else has written a novel about parental alienation, and so 
they love this experience. You know, there's a, a young woman that is a documentarian and she made a documentary film about it. And, you know, when you're going through something and you think you're the only person that's ever gone through this, that is a really lonely feeling, you know? And so I'm happy to say that I think half the child has given, you know, some comfort to some, to some people that, you know, okay, their story is a little different and everybody's story is always different, but it's like, Oh, this this author gets it. You know, they get what I'm what I'm what I'm going through. You know, whether you're the parent who's been alienated or the child that's been alienated. You know, and you know even the term custody battle. You know, it, it, it like everything. It's it sounds makes it sound like sports. Like it's you know, right. What's America? Everything's right. like yeah. uh, <laughs> everything's like made into war terms. Right. Well, I mean, look at the current president. Who everything is in terms of losers. Right. You know, you're you're like you're either you're either great or you're a loser. Right. There's right. no it's all there is in his world, right? Mm. Um, so, you know, I, 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 in fact, sort of have a problem with the term custody battle because it implies this is all about the two parents, he versus she, or he versus he, or she versus she, or whatever it is. But in fact, it should be about the child, you know? And, and that's Michael's philosophy in Half the Child. He says repeatedly that it's not about him versus his ex-wife. It's about Benjamin, their son. And if you put Benjamin's needs first, then the rest will fall into place, you know? Well, unfortunately, an awful lot of people don't do that. Um, so for me, it's, it's less about advocating for parents, it's a part of it, but more about advocating for children. It sounds very simple. You know, when you, when you can boil something down to a sentence, it sounds trite at times, you know? But the court system in New York State, where, where half the child is set, and in most states, they have, a, they have this sort of line that they say, that it's about, quote, the best interest of the child. But it's not, it's about money. I mean, I can't be more blunt than that. I was talking before about the money in, in, you know, in, the, in the aviation industry and how when I testify in Congress, you know, those airline executives, their companies may have given you know, millions, if not billions in, in lobbying money over years to the very people that were going to Washington to talk to. Both parties, let's be very clear, you know, and everybody that runs for president, you know, all the candidates, Democrats, Republicans, House, Senate. And so it's the same here with half the child. I, I didn't know it until I started researching it during the book that, you know, this is a trillion with a T, a trillion dollar industry, child custody. I mean, think about that. Of all the things we want to make money off of, bad enough that we have a for-profit healthcare system in this country, in my view, mm. but to make money off of, you know, the misery of children because it's this this whole system feeds on itself and the lawyers and the forensic accountants and the forensic investigators and the psychologists and the judges and all of this and it's money 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 and it's like look if you put the interest of the kid first and say well what's best for that child the rest will fall into place mm -hmm. but the system is designed so that you don't have a quick easy solution it's designed that you come back and you come back and you come back. And I have a friend that's been in a custody battle just to show this is not a gender specific issue. It's a she, she's, she's very close to me. And she's been in a custody battle that's going on five years now. And every time you think, okay, maybe there'll be some sort of settlement. Well, we're going to postpone and well, we'll come back in three months and well, we're going to do this mm -hmm. and more people are going to be investigated, you know, it's money. And it's just, it, to me, it's horrific that we make money off of, you know, something like child custody. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I was going to do a quick, quick, couple of quick announcements. Um, this is Ready for Brooklyn. Ready for Brooklyn is a 501c3 nonprofit organization. 
uh, rely primarily from donations from listeners like you. Speaking of money, how money kind of helps us keep uh, on air. So if also um, go to readyforbrooklyn.org slash donate or donations, uh, donate, I believe, and you can uh, make a donation to Ready for Brooklyn. It's a uh, tax deductible. Also, if you live in New York City and run for either fun or exercise, here's a way to learn something about the city while you're getting in your workout. City Running Tours is now offering neighborhood running tours designed with locals in mind. New York City takes pride in the diversity and character of its neighborhoods. And it's this, these unique running tours offer an opportunity to learn the history of the neighborhood and get personal recommendations from your guide. Choose from the tours of 23 neighborhoods, including the East Village, the Upper West Side, Bushwick, Long Island City, and Roosevelt Island. For more information about the running tours and see if your neighborhood is there, go to a full tour schedule. Check out their website at cityrunningtours.com slash New York City. Um, also, you can listen to us uh, on your uh, phone. If you're chained to your computer, don't be chained to your computer. Go to readyforbrooklyn.org. Uh, put in Ready for Brooklyn into your iPhone app or Android app, and you'll find the apps for that. You can download the apps. Um, Finally, uh, you know, the whole archives of all of our, sh- of our episodes are readyforbrooklyn.org slash truth to power, where you can find uh, other episodes of Truth to Power show. So um, definitely enjoy, binge, listen during the holiday season. So we're here with William J. McGee uh, and Micah Zevin. Uh, and we're, talk- we're wrapping up our conversation last 10 minutes. Um, so now I understand... You'll be going into some scripted dramas, TV dramas. Eventually, you're kind of aiming towards that or gearing towards that. So why don't we talk a little bit about some of the um, you know, TV shows or things you're watching or binging, as it were. Is there anything you're binging that you'd like to talk a little bit about and what you learned as a writer from them, maybe? Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a great question because, you know, I think a lot of people have noted that we're sort of in a golden age for television right now for scripted drama, you know. I don't mean the reality shows. I oh, totally, call that totally, a, yeah. <laughs> that's not a golden age. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but um, it really is a great opportunity. And the interesting thing with COVID is, um, you know, even before COVID, you know, obviously TV had gotten very hot. You know, a lot of really great writers and actors are involved in TV now. Um, but with COVID, you know, it, it's been even better for TV in a way because people are binge watching more than ever, you know. And... The, um, talking to a TV producer recently, and she said that um, you know it's very tough on the movie industry right now for obvious reasons. Movie theaters are closed all across the country, and mm. you know it's hard to distribute. But TV, they can get out there, you know. Yeah. And um, so I am. I have to say, you know, I've, I've been binge watching so much television lately. Um, uh, a close friend and I, we're, we're we're working on a pilot. I'm not able to share too much about it yet, but you know, we're, we have hopes for it. And. Um, we both sort of, you know, say to each other, oh, check out this series and check out that series. And, um, you know, I, I find myself, you know, sitting down to watch one episode of something and then suddenly I'm watching, you know, four or five episodes. Um, I was watching Ray Donovan recently, you know, mm. about, a, about a fixer, right? And, mm. um, and a very complicated family life with this, with this character. And I thought, well, I'll check it out. I'll see two or three episodes. Next thing you know, I was on season five or something, you know, and yeah. it, you know over the course a few weeks and couple couple each night um i think you know i think it's a great thing for many reasons and and i think it's a natural fit for me personally to be honest with you because i have always felt that 
I mean, even as a, as, you know, as a young guy just starting out as a writer, I always thought, you know, it's very odd that you take a novel. I mean, you know, half the child is 361 pages. You take a novel and you condense it into a two-hour movie. It doesn't seem like it's, it's a very good fit very often. I've mm -hmm. always sort of felt that a TV series is more like a novel than a movie, you know? People yeah. say, oh, will half the child be a movie? Well, that would be great, but I think it would be even better to be a TV series, you know, yeah. um, because then you can really let it breathe. You know, a novel, you get to do so many things. A short story generally has to be focused, you know. I mean, I'm talking to poets, so you know that, you know, I mean, poetry, it's usually, you know, disagree with me if I'm wrong, but to me it seems, because I'm not a poet, but it's often like primarily one theme that you're getting across yeah. in a poem, right, like a short story. You know, a novel can do all kinds of things. You know, Michael has all kinds of interests. There's a there's a love interest in here. There's this seedy boxing gym that he goes to. There's the air traffic control stuff. His family got this big complicated family. So you know, there's all kinds of things going on in a novel. So to me, um, TV. You know, to me, a short story could make a good movie, and a a, a novel could make a good TV series. Mm. So. Um, I'm eager to do something with half the child in that regard, you know, to stretch it out and let it breathe and let, you know, because what is this about? It's about a relationship between a father and his young son. And you don't see a lot of that. You don't see, you know, there are these myths that drive me crazy personally as a, as a, as a single father. Um, you know, uh, being a father is the most important thing to me. We've talked about a lot of different hats I wear, but that's yeah. the most important. My son's an adult. He just had his birthday the other day. He's 27. And, you know, he's the love of my life. But in Half the Child, Michael talks about this all the time. There are these myths about fatherhood that are so old and tired and lame where it's still like the 1950s, which it's not, where fathers don't know how to change diapers and fathers babysit their own kids and fathers don't know their, anything about their kids. That's just so not true for so many fathers across all demographic lines these days. Mm. Most fathers are so dedicated and love their kids, you know, and they're not just out at work and come home and don't know anything about their kids. And so for me, I would love to see Half the Child become a TV series because <laughs> you get to see the interaction between the two of them. A lot of the scenes in Half the Child are just Michael and Ben doing stuff, going to the park, doing stuff, you know, talking about their day, you know, their rituals at night, putting him to bed and singing right. him to sleep, mm. you know. And, um, to be honest, there, there isn't a lot of that out there in, in, in fiction or elsewhere. And, you know, you turn on TV and you see a commercial and it's some lame father who's a jerk, you know, and the mother and the kids are just shaking their heads and, oh, there he goes again, you know, drinking beer and watching a football game, you know, come on, we got chores to do. And, you know, it drives me crazy. It drives, you know, many people crazy. So with TV, I think it's, you know, it's the medium now in, in many ways, you know, and, um, you know, for me, it's, it just, it allows, you know, a work to breathe the way a novel right. can breathe, you know, you can see the whole progression of the story and uh, exactly. Yeah. yeah. It's yeah. slow. Like a lot of shows do deep dives and really some of them are very slow, maybe too slow, but they're right. all very, very novelistic. Yeah. Right. Well, I think my favorite TV series of all time was the wire, which is set in Baltimore. And it just, it really, like, you get a sense of an entire world by the end of that series. Only five seasons. I think it could have gone longer, I wish it had. Mm -hmm. But you, I mean, you know, you not only see, you know, at, at first you think the focus is on drug dealing and, and the corners, as they say, and, you know, and the people involved in that world and the cops. But it becomes about the courts and the political system and the school system and the education and the journalists covering it and all of that. And it's like you see a whole world. 
And that's what you can do on TV. You know, I think The Sopranos did that very successfully. You know, yes. Tony Soprano, I think, may be the greatest character in television history because you got to see this guy. It was like I binge watched The Sopranos uh, recently. Mm-hmm. And my gosh, what a fantastic actor James Gandolfini was, you know. And not only that, but he was in practically, you know, so many scenes, not all of them, but so many. And you saw him at work, you know, at the at the at the strip club and, you know, the other stuff that comprised his work. And you saw him at home with his wife and kids. And then the third leg of the stool, you saw him, you know, with his shrink, you know. And um and he was such a great character. You really got to see so many sides of him. And there were scenes that at first you wondered, well, where's this scene going? And then, wow, another thing surprised you that you didn't, didn't see coming. And not, you know, not necessarily the, the big violent scenes, but just the small interactions, you know. And to me, that's very novelistic. So to me, television as a medium is novelistic, you know. Yeah. Film, often you have to make one scene sort of, you compress 10 things into one scene and like, okay, this is it. A, a television series, you know, there's Tony Soprano with his son. Again, there he is with his daughter. There he is with his, you know, his coworkers, you know. Um, so uh, for me, you know, I'm, I'm hopeful that maybe half the child could, you know, that, that would be my goal eventually. That'd be great. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Thanks so much. So Thank why don't we just reiterate, uh, where can we find out more information about you and your book? Sure. And your books? Um, so, so, uh, uh, to, to find out anything about me or either book, Half the Child or Attention All Passengers, the best place is the website, which is halfthechild.com. No punctuation or anything like that, just halfthechild.com. And um, if you want to reach me, Bill McGee, um, there's, there's uh, an email contact on there and you can reach me, but it's just, you know, the right to Half the Child. And um, I forgot to mention, actually, that there's more good news about Half the Child uh, coming up um, next month the audio version of the book is going to be out. Oh, good. So, good. you know, yeah. some people like to do that, particularly people that drive and have commutes and stuff. They like mm. to pop in audio books, you know. Um, and so, um, you know, but it's available online in print and Kindle um, through a bunch of places, not just Amazon, but also um, barnesandnoble.com and some other places. Great, so, great. Um, Thank you. So this has been the Truth to Power Show and Ready for Brooklyn. Uh, we Thank you so much for being here. We've had Micah Zevin, who also actually has a, poetry book just coming out in december 1st so people can check his out his poetry book out and try Called to Metal Heavy. order it <laughs> yep. order the book oh, yeah. queen press <laughs> yeah Poets of Queen's press so definitely i encourage people to look that up uh google it or micah do you have a website as well or um it's um micah's uh micah7.weebly.com oh cool yep okay. and um it's being sold it, on yeah. barnes and noble and book of millions and indie bound and other places uh, like that yeah, great, great. Thanks so much. And uh, thank, people thank can you, uh, hopefully tune Happen. in next time on every Monday at 8 a.m. And uh, Thursday, we broadcast Thursdays at 9 a.m. So that's our broadcast slot right now, but subject to change. Thank you, guys. All thank right. you. Thanks so for nice to talk to you. All right, bye-bye. Bye.